Support comes from the San Juan Islands. Spring in the San Juans can provide time to slow down and savor the scenery of quiet beaches, hiking, biking, and whale watching on Lopez, Orcas, and San Juan Island and Friday Harbor. Learn more at visitsanjuans.com. Set your mind to island time. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. I think people were really going to miss just the quality of service that they'd gotten used to. Paul Roberts is a business reporter for the Seattle Times. He's been following the recent closures of Bartell drugs around the Seattle area. The company had a knack for hiring sort of the Bartell type employee, someone who was really good with customer service, who got into curating, you know, the product selection, who got to know their customers and knew them by name, knew what they liked to buy. When Rite Aid acquired Bartell Drugs in 2020, executives were optimistic the deal could turn the longtime local institution around. At least according to the CEO at the time of Rite Aid, they saw Bartell as a model that could help them, Rite Aid, become kind of more upscale. They were really wanting to sort of take that Bartell model and sort of infuse it throughout the rest of the Rite Aid organization. And instead what happened is kind of the, the reverse. You know, Rite Aid didn't have the cash to invest properly in its own stores or Bartell stores. At the time, Chairman George D. Bartell said the sale of the 130-year-old family company was the only option. Regional operators just couldn't compete in the pharmacy business anymore. But now, Rite Aid itself is in a deep hole. The chain filed for bankruptcy in October. Since the acquisition, Rite Aid has closed 21 of 68 Bartell's locations. In chats at Bartell's shuttering Fifth and Olive store in downtown Seattle, Paul Roberts heard concerns about what these changes would mean for customers' prescriptions going forward. The nearest Bartell's is about two and a half miles away, so when the last downtown location closes, customers will have to make some tough choices. There was the, the, just the physical challenge of having to go to a, you know, another store to find the things that they were getting at Bartell. Um, you know, and it's going to be another system, you know, another pharmacy system, which people are concerned about. I don't think people were stunned by this, but I think they were hoping that this one final store, you know, the, the last Bartell drugs in downtown Seattle, could have found a way to survive. And, you know, it's pretty bittersweet when it didn't. The Bartels closures, added to some CVS and Walgreens shutting down around Seattle, have some customers and pharmacists concerned about what feels like a growing pharmacy desert. But why are pharmacies struggling to stay afloat? I spoke with Don Downing to get an answer. Don is a professor emeritus for the University of Washington School of Pharmacy. So if I'm living somewhere like Capitol Hill in Seattle, the Bartels has gone out of business, the Rite Aid is going out of business, it really feels like all of the neighborhood pharmacies are closing around me. As somebody who's owned, operated, and studied pharmacies, what are your first thoughts when you see all these closures of pharmacies around the Seattle area? Well, my first thought is it's a real tragedy for that community and many other communities which are increasingly finding pharmacy deserts and uh, rather than access that they're accustomed to. It also reminds me that this is very much a similar situation with healthcare providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, and pharmacists, clinicians who are being uh, constrained in their ability um, in terms of sustainability and also patient access to them because of restrictive networks, et cetera. 
I think it's hard to separate the two. They are they are not two separate things. They're the same process. Yeah. So let's get right down to it. I mean, what is going wrong in the pharmacy business? Because as you point out, these closures are leading to deserts that can really impact people's access to vital medications, to vital advice from pharmacists. It's something that we all need at some point, uh, you know, medication and advice on it. What's going wrong? Why are these businesses not able to cut it? Well, I, I, a lot of people have kind of weighed in on that. I've seen a lot of articles in the national news about this, too. I think the people with the most insight understand that for the last 20 years or so, patient costs to get health care and the employer costs to get health care shifted from the providers to the administrators. And pharmacies, um, good 10 years ago, about 70% of them were losing money every day in the pharmacy department. I'm not talking about the front end, if they have a lot of OTC items, but I'm talking about the pharmacy itself. In the face of increasing drug costs, a compensation to pharmacy departments and pharmacists has spiraled downwards uh, dramatically in order to, quote, control costs, but to the point where the pharmacies can no longer afford to operate. So you mentioned something there that I think we need a definition on, and that is pharmacy benefit managers. A lot of people might wonder, what the heck is that? What is that, Don? You know, I think it's the most unknown name of any healthcare entity that's out there, but arguably the wealthiest and the biggest player in the field. Pharmacy benefit managers are another term. Third-party administrators, they're the ones who broker the deal between a man in the pharmacy business between the manufacturer who makes the drug and is trying to get their drug on health plans. The pharmacy benefit management companies also negotiate the formularies for the health plans. They negotiate the prices paid to pharmacies for filling the prescription and the costs for consumers, patients, uh, that they're going to pay at the pharmacy counter. Um, so they, they have their hands in all of those things. I was really struck that you shared an email that you had received from a local pharmacist before we got on the phone here. And this jumped out to me that this pharmacist who wishes to remain anonymous obviously doesn't want to affect his job. He was talking about the way that, for example, he's filling an EpiPen prescription and the EpiPen, which has an acquisition cost of $500. A patient coming to fill that prescription has a copay of $10. But according to this pharmacist, the insurance plan paid one cent in reimbursement. I mean, and there's no way that that pharmacist, it's illegal for them to raise a price on the patient beyond the copay in order to cover the difference for acquiring that EpiPen. What's going on there, Don? Because I don't understand how a pharmacist can be expected to carry those differences between the copay and the actual acquisition cost of the medication on a regular basis. Of course, they wouldn't be able to stay in business. Well, not only could they not stay in business doing that, and that's only one drug, and, and that's a great example, but uh, there are a lot of HIV drugs that uh, two or $300 per prescription loss is commonplace. And so the two things happen with that sort of economic pressure. Well, number one, you might have to accept those fees because in order to 
serve the patients that come into you, you have to accept a, a contract with the PBM that causes you to lose that money. And it seems crazy you do that, but believe me, Walgreens, Bartell, Rite Aid, CVS, they want to maintain their customer base. So if they don't accept these contracts, you know, then they lose maybe a third or 50% of their other customers. And, and that's not going to cause them to do very well. The problem is, is that you accept these contracts and you start hemorrhaging all this money filling prescriptions. And it supposedly saves the health system money. But in fact, if it closes down the pharmacy, then you haven't served the community whatsoever. Now, these pharmacists, including the one who wrote to me, said that they're stocking these drugs not because it makes any economic sense whatsoever, but rather they have an obligation, they feel, to the community to provide these vital drugs, EpiPen, HIV drugs. I mean, if you don't have them when you need them, you might die. And so they provide this to the community at a great loss, but sometimes... Um, you know, with the loss of front end of the stores through, you know, Amazon purchases rather than selling things out front that help mitigate those losses, there's no way to mitigate them anymore. Here you have a situation where the person who wrote to me who tells me that they're drowning in the pharmacy. They have lots and lots of new patients coming from these closed pharmacies, but because they're losing so much money, they can't staff the pharmacy to accommodate these people. And so they're disappointing themselves and their patients on a daily basis. It's really quite stressful, and a lot of people want to quit. I have to say, it, reading that email that the pharmacist sent to you, I looked back on the times that I've been frustrated at a pharmacy waiting for a prescription to be filled, and maybe I was a little you know, short with somebody. I, did, I certainly wouldn't you know, yell or, or show a lot of anger, but I was a little annoyed. And I... I'm having a moment of realization of what was happening on the other side of that counter, and that is understaffing, and that is a severely broken business model. Don, is there any chance for a solution here? I mean, it sounds as though pharmacies need to have a greater ability to negotiate these reimbursement rates. I mean, is there any chance that's going to happen? Uh, it, it's certainly not sustainable. It is a broken business model, and it's one that um, that I've been looking at and working to mitigate for um, actually a couple of decades. There, there are a couple of things. Number one, every year for the last at least 10 years, the Washington State Pharmacy Association and pharmacy associations in all 50 states have been uh, going to the state legislature to make more transparent the financial transactions that go through these pharmacy benefit managers that result in non-regulation of the of these entities, uh, lack of transparency, lack of accountability, while they have all become, these pharmacy benefit management companies have all become Fortune 50 companies at great peril to our communities and, and the healthcare providers trying to serve those communities. So talking to your legislator, about supporting these bills. So what happens every year, it seems like, the pharmacy benefit manager bills that the State Pharmacy Association introduces are fought against by very high-paid lobbyists for these benefit managers. And they often find 
what gets passed out of the legislature, if anything, is often so curtailed that it really has no impact on the survivability of the pharmacies. That's been a real struggle. Also, on a, on a national level, Senator Patty Murray and other uh, Congress people have tried to f- deal with this directly on a federal level, but those bills have gotten nowhere. They've they've been out there for a number of years too, trying to daylight the dealings that uh, these pharmacy benefit managers do in in darkness for great wealth on their part, but extraction of dollars to the very providers trying to provide the care. All right. So we've been talking about the difficulties on the business side of things, but let's just bring it back to patients and what this means. I mean, some might be thinking, well, the local pharmacies close. That's happening in retail as well. There's fewer places where people can go in their neighborhoods to shop, perhaps, but Online will take that place and people can order things and it'll be fine. What do you think about that, Don? Well, you know, um, historically, I would have said uh, the online option is really not a good option because um, I personally, as you mentioned in the introduction, I've owned and operated pharmacies, both tribal clinics and community pharmacies. I know the importance of having that personal connection with somebody in the community a very accessible personal connection. Something I think is important to note is that these pharmacy benefit managers, commonly referred to as PBMs, own the vast majority of mail-order pharmacies in the U.S. So when stores close, the PBMs find a shift to their mail-order pharmacies is a logical conclusion for that. So it seems a somewhat of a conflict of interest, maybe more than somewhat of a conflict of interest, but it's certainly self-serving to um, to have people go to their very own mail order pharmacies by squeezing the local pharmacists to the point where they can't stay open. It's a real tragedy for the community and and again the providers who are trying to take care of people. So there are a couple immediate things people can do in this when their pharmacy closes or they hear they're going to close. The lucky people find out it's closing sometime in advance and they can transfer their prescriptions. Other times, it's just closed when they get there. Uh, this pharmacist who wrote to me said, hey, they were on hold for seven hours trying to get a transfer from a closing pharmacy to their pharmacy. And it's because they're just so overwhelmed with the work. And and one might say, well, you should just hire more people. Well, there's no money to hire more people in the pharmacy. They're losing money already. So, but but you can, and I know this puts some pressure on medical offices, you could ask your healthcare providers to uh, write new prescriptions for you so that the pharmacy you now go to, whether it be mail order or another local pharmacy that remains open, that they can start filling that immediately rather than waiting for that transfer time. So that's that's helpful. That's great advice. Yeah. So I think that's very useful advice. It, it um, doesn't always work for everybody. And, and frankly, physicians, as we talked about, are similarly impaired in their staffing and needs for high productivity and speed and quick appointments, like quick prescriptions. They, uh, they're compromised also, but that sometimes is a, is a workaround to, to the long delays and, and the fear that you're not going to be able to continue on your medication you for a while may have to go to a pharmacy that's some distance away from you. Um, you can get a mail order, although you know I 
always hesitate there because this is the end result that I think is purposeful in uh, in squeezing the local pharmacies because the mail orders, other than uh, Amazon, I believe, are um, all pretty much all owned by the PBMs. Don, what do you say to students who are looking at this business model and wondering, should I become a pharmacist? It's funny, uh, Libby, uh, may, maybe not so funny, but even though I'm a professor emeritus, I still interview applicants who are School of Pharmacy. In fact, last Friday morning, I spent all morning doing the same, and that conversation comes up in every interview. So a couple things. Number one, in Washington State, pharmacists are recognized as medical providers, which means that they can enroll just like a physician or a nurse practitioner as a medical provider in a health plan. And when they see patients not the dispensing side, but the clinical side, diabetes management, PrEP, HIV prevention, uh, pain, you know, there's all oncology, they're involved in everything. The clinics that hire them now can bill for the pharmacist time with patients. And that provides a very high level of, uh, of skill usage that our schools are. Our school, the University of Washington, one of the top pharmacy schools in the world. And yet, those graduates do not want to work in a community pharmacy that's losing money every day and where, although they see issues that come up, like let's say an opioid patient who's getting prescriptions of opioids from a couple of different doctors. Well, if they're only paid to fill a prescription, and even if it's only marginal payment, and they don't get paid for their, to getting people off of drugs, in fact, that hurts them, uh, then they gonna, they're going to fill these prescriptions. So a lot of our graduates are, are, are people that are thinking about coming to pharmacy school are looking at the non-dispensing side of pharmacy, the, the chronic disease, complex drug therapy, care coordination side of pharmacy that's emerging rather quickly in, in Washington State. We are the only state in the country that requires all, pretty much all commercial health plans in Washington State to pay pharmacists for providing these services. So that's what we talk about in the interviews, because as you, as we started at the beginning here, the, this current distribution model, dispensing of medicines as your primary source of income is, is gone. It's gone. And uh, it's only a matter of time before more pharmacies close. Don Downing is a professor emeritus of the University of Washington School of Pharmacy. Thanks for shedding some light on this, Don. I really appreciate the conversation and your expertise. You're welcome. Hopefully we can um, fix this thing. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.